Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Uncapped Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Sands, and in studio is my co-host, is Kate Masters. Hi there. You haven't been here in a few weeks, I have know, you? I know, it has. It's been a while. We were off last week, and then <laughs> you missed the last couple. I did, yeah. You glad to be back? I am, especially with Mead. And and uh, all the way from Baltimore, in this torrential downpour, Andrew Gefkin from Charm City Mead Works was nice enough to trek out here. Excited to be here. Uh, so, <clears throat> I'm going to have a lot of questions, because I know next to nothing about Mead, so you'll get a lot of... Um, Really very simple softball questions to begin with. But first, let's talk about your history. Like, what what were you doing before you decided to get, open a meadery? Well, you guys are already way ahead. Most people expect us to be butchers and, you know, chopping up animals, making meat. So we've gotten really good at just <laughs> pronouncing mead. Duh, 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 duh. But I would say that's one of the most... Um, frustrating things to talk about mead is that you can't just say hey i'm having someone on my podcast that's from a meadery today and then continue the conversations at least a minute worth of no mead they make mead no it has nothing to do with meat (laughs) yeah it's pretty awkward when you show up at a bar restaurant to talk to their bar manager and the chef comes out (laughs) (laughs) um but we've been it's been great um my business partner and i started with james boycourt uh, about three years ago now, started 2014, and we took two complete right turns in life. Um, a lot of random events happened to get us here. We were both engineers, totally normal, uh, totally stable, and he was doing underwater ROVs. I was doing some carbon footprinting. I know the carbon footprint of a Skittle. I did read that, so I do. Yes. What is the carbon footprint uh, of a Skittle? It's very small, but there are a lot of Skittles. <laughs> like so, a lot of Skittles. Like how there. do you quantify that? What like? W- it was it, in CO2 per, we do different package sizes. So they have everything from like the share size to actually they have a Ninja Nunchuck um, option in Asia where you get two nunchucks full of Skittles. That's super cool. Really? Yeah, people are pretty excited about that. (laughs) Um, But they have a much higher carbon footprint, I guess. Yeah, a lot of plastic in that packaging. So we did that for a while, and we're James is a beekeeper. That's uh, really how we got into this. He's beekeeping, homebrewing, got me into beekeeping. Um, Mead making is actually a lot easier than homebrewing. So if you're a homebrewer out there and you want to try something different, I suggest it, and please, when you have something finished, come talk to us. We love hanging out with the homebrewers because you can try all the recipes that are totally impractical for us, whether that's a billion pounds of coconut or peanut butter or whatever you want. Um, We have a lot of fun with it, but it's just honey yeast water, so it's a fermentation process. We don't brew. We don't distill. It's just mixing things up. Uh, We're using domestic U.S. honey, and it's just... Our facility looks like a brewery, so you see those big conical tanks, but instead of grain, we just have honey everywhere. Yeah, like the pictures I was looking at from your meadery, they, it looked exactly like a brewery, so I, that's what I, I didn't know the process at all, so you're just taking those three ingredients, throw, I mean, I'm simplifying it a lot, I'm, I assume, but you throw those in and just let them sit? or Yeah, I mean, we talk to them. You know, make sure, that make the sure they're comfortable yeah. and feel, <laughs> feel at home. You guys okay at 68? We can turn up to 70. How are you <laughs> feeling? Um, it is a longer process than beer. Um, to our stuff, it's, it's more of a wine, so it takes several months at a minimum. And it's just been part of the process is figuring out how we do these things. A lot of our products are drier, lighter than most traditional meads, so pushing it more towards a beer and cider cat- category as opposed to the traditional mead side. But it's been um, it's an adventure in the same way that you have different grains or brewers change their recipe around that way with different hops, different grains. We can use different honeys, and you don't need to be a mead maker to taste the difference between if I made the same recipe and used two different honeys, you'd easily be able to tell a difference. So well, I want to r- rewind a little bit. So was it simply just that, that as you guys got in more into beekeeping and making mead at home, was it just you were unhappy with doing engine like your engineering uh, jobs, or you're just ready for a change? And it was a, a lot of different things. I was so my wife uh, also owns a, her own little business. So this idea of kind of starting your own business, getting something shot, was being your own boss was really appealing uh, to me. 
I think with James, he was looking for a little bit of a change. The way he puts it, laying undersea cable across the ocean one mile an hour gets old pretty quick. (laughs) Um, But we also just were able to look into situations in 2014. We both were able to be um, started this part-time. So we were doing it in nights, weekends, and working our jobs during the day. That was the big thing. Also, Baltimore is wonderful, and there's lots of tiny little warehouses in the middle of nowhere for very cheap. Because we didn't want to risk everything. I didn't have enough confidence in this. We were homebrewing. James had an annual party where he would serve a bunch of mead. It was pretty popular. People were saying, hey, why don't you do more of this? Makes it a bigger scale. We were looking around. You saw craft breweries are getting going. You've got so many of them going these days, doing really cool stuff. Cideries are starting to happen. Seeing some spirits. But nobody was doing mead. So we decided, hey, we can try this part-time, very small and see what happens. Do you feel like that is one of the next trends that are starting to take off? Because I don't know if it's just because I'm paying more attention to the craft beverage industry in general that I see more and more mead coming out, or is it just, is it a vastly growing market? It's a very quickly growing market, but it's also a very small market. So I think when we started, there were about 200 meteries in the country compared to say about 4,500 craft breweries and now we're up to probably around five six hundred meteries so it's doubled in a few years but there's still it's still a very small fragmented market and some people just want to do kind of the very small nano shop where they just sell in their little area right out of their space and other people are doing a little bit bigger ones but there's been a lot of growth I think more so it's not really the first trend is going to be more cider you're starting to see that and then we'll kind of ride along with that as there's a lot of similarities they're both gluten-free can be drier lighter doesn't have to be kind of see the trend seems to be you see the sweeter version first so with those ciders that you saw that are out there kind of the broad scale tend to be a little bit sweeter and now we're coming down to the drier stuff i think same thing with the mead as well where traditionally it was a little bit sweeter and now people are trending towards drier stuff and how do you make a dry mead with something that's honey based we either put in less honey or we let it ferment longer. Hmm. So it's all still honey-based where there's no, it's just 100% honey for us. So if we want to do a uh, completely dry one, we'll do less honey to start than, say, one of the sweeter ones, or we'll just let it ferment longer. Well, we should probably crack one of these open to try. <laughs> Which uh, would you say is the best to start with? I would suggest the wildflower. Okay. So this yellow can right here, this is going to be, like all of our canned ones, they're 6.9% alcohol. And this is going to be kind of just the carbonated meads in its simplest form for us. No added flavors, uh, just honey, yeast, water. And wildflower is the varietal of honey we use, which is kind of a mishmash of all the flowers. Bees are going wherever they want. This is going to be floral, light, and very refreshing. And do you usually use wildflower flower honey in all your meads? Is that always the base honey, or do you use different types? For now, it's been the base. We're using wildflower. We're starting to use more orange blossom. Oh, okay. Because um, we just really like that. You get this nice floral orange flavor to it. And playing around with more of the different fruit ones. I'm a big fan of fruited honeys, so whether it's blueberry, raspberry, cranberry. Um, but then there's also some, like a buckwheat honey, where... I made a one with just straight, straight buckwheat honey, and it was like licking a sweaty horse. <laughs> <laughs> you make it sound so appetizing. Yeah. <laughs> <Delicious>. <laughs> um, a surprising number of the people that are into those r- really sour, really funky beers were into that one, but most people are like this is the most disgusting thing I've ever. Heard. <laughs> what do you think, Chris? I like it. Yeah, it is dry. It is. That's a, the only mead I've ever had that I vaguely remember having. I think it was just a regular traditional, and it it was I, I would have likened it definitely exactly like wine, and I'm not I don't like wine, and it was it was super sweet, and but the, I like this. This is really good. I would. And have you seen a growth in the carbonate? Because I've been to a meadery in Portland, Maine, but they really stuck to the wine style where it was all bottled, kind of you know like they use that style. I've never seen canned meat before mm-hmm. or carbonated. Um, so they actually, Maine Meadworks, we're big fans of them. Oh, yeah. They, uh, they, the Mead world's very small, so everyone <laughs> knows everyone. Um, they have a couple carbonated ones now that they've started doing similar to this, 
But right, for whatever reason, the canned meads are an anomaly. We're one of the first three or four to can in the country. And I'm not really sure why. Everyone asks us, oh my God, how did you figure out how to can mead or put it in cans? That's so smart. And the only thing is we've been drinking craft beer for the last decade. That's, I mean, that's the trend. You see the craft beers are all in cans. It's such a great package. You can take it up mountains, down rivers, barbecues. Um, and also for us, from a marketing perspective, people tend to put cans in beer sections. Mm-hmm. And with these, you'll see also with a couple of the other flavors, they're much more beer-like. And so when people are store, they always want to try what's new, what haven't I had. So they go down the line and they see all these great Maryland local breweries, Union, Raw, Manor Hill. It's just right down the block. And then you see, oh, mead. I don't know what this is. I have to try it. Um, and your packaging is beautiful. I, I absolutely, like, especially the hop one. I, I just love the, the B logo. <laughs> and because I could have held that up. So if anyone's watching, they could see it good. And, I mean, they're all, they're just great. Yeah, we got incredibly lucky with uh, our designer. She did a ton of awesome work. We spent about four months looking at bees. Were we going to go more natural bee? Do we go more geometric? Uh, we knew we wanted to do bee because in the mead world, really, you're either doing Vikings or you're doing honey. <laughs> and we wanted to. We're trying to make it a little bit more modern. Uh, you didn't want to go the Renaissance Festival route? <laughs> no, that, that's been done. And it's been done well, and we're leaving that to people. We're trying to be the mead of the Ren Fair tailgate. <laughs> um, things like that. So it's it's also we, being engineers, nerded out. And if you stand 20 feet away from a shelf, what do you see? You stand two feet away from a beer shelf, what do you see? And we felt that these blocks of color, so you tend to see our cans, are all just kind of monocolor, a uh, cleaner look, that that would stand out. Oh, I was just going to ask, you mentioned when we first started going, you know, like sort of going to bars and speaking to bar managers. So are you on tap anywhere in the local area? We are. Um, you don't see it on tap as much. It tends mm-hmm. to be more cans just because there's, I mean, there's so many great breweries out there that taps are getting to be harder and harder. The great news is that more and more people are rotating their taps. So more often you'll see one of our kegs there and be there for a couple of weeks. And then a few months later, you'll see it again. Uh, but we're, we just pushed out to the Frederick area in the last couple months, uh, which has been really exciting. So we've been in some places there. You'll definitely see it on tap more this time of year in the summer because you're seeing this first one drier, lighter, a little mm-hmm. bit more refreshing. We don't really have the ability to make a kind of stout, porter, heavier beer for the winter. So it tends to rotate away a little bit more towards the cans in the winter and then back on draft a little bit more in the summer. Mm, sure. Do you gain much from having it on tap as opposed to drinking from a can? Like where from a beer, it can can be not huge. Like it's definitely a substantial taste difference sometimes between a beer on draft and a beer in a can. Does mead work the same way? A little bit. Um, if we've done it right, not too much of a difference. A lot of those differences will come down to the establishment, how they're serving it, how clean are their lines. There's starting to be more conversations about that, um, how fresh is it, things like that. But in general, we actually can and keg off of the same tank, so it should be a pretty uniform batch. Um, just depends on, with canning, there tends to be a little bit more DO pickup just from under the lids. But in general, it should be pretty close. Don't usually see too much difference. The big gain for us is that when you're on tap, you're into that market of beer drinkers that only look at the draft list. They're going to come in, and they're going to have one of those six or eight beers on tap. They don't even look at the back of the menu for the cans, the wines, those things. Yeah, mm. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> oh, me too. I, uh, that's why I was like, we got to get away, figure out a way to get this on tap. All right, which one should uh, we open next? Uh, I think you should do the basil lemongrass. Oh. Because that's just a very unique and different one. It's either that, or if you're into spicy things, the mango camapena, which is our summer seasonal. Oh, yeah, so. I didn't even notice. This isn't the hop one. The hop one's over there. We can also open the hop one if you want got all kinds of options here we'll do actually yeah, i really want to try i really want to try that one we'll do the hop one next and are you in charge of flavor development do you come up with all the the innovations uh sort of uh, i used to do it pretty much all myself we always have one tap at the meadworks that's rotating experimental mm-hmm. one um one keg and then it's gone or my business partner would do it but now we've been uh, as we've grown a little bit we're now up to four employees we're trying to involve them a little bit more so actually our 
Last couple releases, we did a raspberry coconut. Oh. That was one of our production guys, Elliot. And then our spring seasonal, a grapefruit rosebud, um, was our salesperson, Hillary. So this right, is... A little more of that one. <laughs> um, but hops is mine. I spent about six months just doing single hop kegs and just figuring out what happens with Citra, what happens with Centennial, mm. do I want a piney one. Um, we finally settled in on just dry hopping with mostly Centennial and a little bit of Citra on top, and then adding just – this actually has a little bit of orange blossom honey on the oh, end. okay. So that's a, just trying to boost that citrus flavor and be kind of hop flavor but not hop bitterness. I'm Yeah, I'm actually – I am not a hops person, but I really like this. I think it's sort of like the honey must tamper down the bitterness or something. Yep, there's that. Also, we just dry hop, so we're not getting – there's this is a technically a zero IBU uh, beverage here. Well, I, th <clears throat> I think that's been a problem in the craft beer industry where for the longest time forever it was if it was if something was described as hoppy it had to be bitter too mm -hmm. like you don't you can get plenty of hop flavor without it being bitter so it that's mm -hmm. it's nice I, I really like this <laughs> I think so. and it's also just one of the trends that we're looking at is is that first generation of craft beer drinkers mm -hmm. that used to go out and drink a 12-pack of double IPAs um, in a night and wake up and go about their day the next <laughs> day is now just getting a little bit past that. And you're seeing this trend towards Saison, Sours, lower ABV stuff, but also to where they still want some hops, but they don't need massive amounts of a billion IBUs because we can't – we're trying to also find where is our niche. We can't make a beer. We know that. So how do we – appeal to people that want hops maybe they've made a lifestyle choice to go gluten-free or they're just feeling that i don't want something as heavy in the summer I'm trying to find where our corner exists within this ipa world that is getting to be i mean the maryland ipa scene right now is getting to be just tremendous so oh, it's exploding <laughs> and it's taking off like crazy yeah and i'm also i'm personally i'm buying into the i love the juice bombs the haze so, so do i i yeah. I, I went to uh, Burley Oak last week, and that place is just amazing. It was oh, yeah. the first time I'd been there, and everything I had was just better than the last. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those guys are putting out some really, really cool stuff. So it's been it's been awesome to see. How close are you to all the other breweries in the Baltimore area? So we just moved. Uh, we used to be in a lonely spot in South Baltimore uh, with waste management. <laughs> um, but we wanted, we wanted to start Meadworks. We wanted to either succeed quietly or, more importantly, fail quietly. <laughs> um, but now that we're feeling better about things, three years in, have some employees, have some distribution, we moved to a new spot up in Mount Vernon. We're just east of 83 on Preston Street, hoping to open our tap room in the next probably mid-late August. So we're really excited about that, and we're also more excited to be Walking distance to Brewers Art. We're five minutes okay. from Waverly Union, 10 minutes from Monument. Um, we're kind of right in the middle of everyone, which That's is really great. exciting. Yeah, yeah. That, then that whole area is just becoming more and more of a destination if you if you want to do the tourism route of visiting different. And then I, so are you, have you found people coming to your, or enjoying your mead? Are they, um, more from the craft beer side of things or is it wine drinkers that are trying it more tends to be particularly with the can ones more the craft beer people they tend to be just a little bit more adventurous we have some wine people coming they tend to like um a little bit of the sweeter ones um that are in bottles still 12 percent. but we're it tends to be just the craft beer people tend to be a little bit more adventurous and it's not so much i think people are also just now it's kind of young professionals are starting to be not necessarily identifying as craft beer, craft spirits, or wine drinkers. Craft beverages in general. They want to try new things. Yeah. They want to try, whether it's even non-alcoholic stuff of, you see all these canned coffees, yeah. teas, seltzers. Um, people are just, it's more depending on what their mood is. So they'll go to a meadery in the you know middle of the day, then they'll go over to Oliver's for beer in the afternoon back to union for release there's kind of people are just it's more they want to be part of the scene and it's really interesting to see the way these tap rooms have really developed in the last uh really two years or so with can releases happening on site special limited trap tap room only things 
people doing a lot more of their kind of own premise stuff. Well, and, and you talked about finding your niche as well. So when you, how do you market yourself? Do you say, oh, we're a honey wine or we're a low, you know, we're a light beer. What do you say to people generally? We're a locally fermented alcohol. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, I mean, we, it's this weird thing of it, exactly as you're saying, how do we figure out how to market ourselves? And it really depends on the crowd we're going for and who we're talking to. If it's a person who knows mead, they said, oh, you know, I traveled in England, Ireland. I love those meads. Or I went to the Ren Fair and I love those meads. We're going to give you a bottle of Sweet Blossom. Mm. And if it's, uh, I love IPAs, all right, we're going to give you our hops can. What, what's the ABV of hops? 6.9. So one and of the it tastes like there's no alcohol in it at all. Yep. It's so smooth. <laughs> <laughs> They'll catch up with you. Um, so we've, one of the reasons that we try to put either a line in cans or in bottles is so that people know how to drink it. Because I've seen meads from 4 to 20%. That's everything from mm. a little thimble to a horn's worth. So we say if it's in a can, drink it like a beer. It's in a bottle, drink it like wine. People kind of understand that. Give them a jumping off point from your current experiences. But really it's, we don't want to have, if we say we're a honey wine maker, then people start to make assumptions. Mm -hmm. And that's not what hops is. Then they get confused of, wait a minute, I was expecting a honey wine. This is hoppy. I'm confused. I don't like hops. What's going on? <laughs> um, so really it's been just kind of trying to fit ourselves into this trend that people want local. They want to be able to go and connect with the brand, see the people behind the bar, see how is it made, whether it's this or you've seen the farm to fork, farm to table. It's happened there. People are just getting a lot more curious about how are these things made that they're consuming. Uh, you said that it's a... Uh the mead industry is a clo close knit, uh, small group. Is, is there a lot of collaboration? Do you guys see each other out for advice to sort of, so there's a lot of, if we need advice, we get in touch with people and there's the industry is starting to form a little bit as people look beyond their little town or their city. Um, there hasn't been that much collaboration the way the brewers are all traveling just because we're also totally overwhelmed trying to keep up. Um, I mean, I never thought we would make as much. I never thought we'd have a canning line and have mm. all these tanks and employees at this point, and we do. And it took um, – actually, we just – about two months ago, James and I were both away from the business on the same day for the first time since we'd started. Um, and so for that reason, you don't have as much of the in-person in collaboration. That being said, if I travel, I try to always stop in and see some cideries, some meteries we can it's it's really interesting though to see how because we're kind of on the fringe of a lot of different industries mm -hmm. meat industry isn't really big enough for its own how open and collaborative the brewers tend to be and everyone's always like come on down you know you got to try this or oh you need like you have a lab question come on by you know our qaqc person can help you out and then the wineries tend to be completely different you don't see as much of the collaborative wineries working together to make these collaborative um wines sharing grapes things like that which is just interesting i don't necessarily know why it just is what yeah, it is i wonder if that's due to like the age of the industry i mean breweries have been around forever but the craft beer industry is somewhat newer so maybe because they've all been clawing their way up mm -hmm. against the establishment at the same time but wineries have always been around so it, they're, they need to. They feel maybe they feel they need to be more protective of what they already have, or might be. It could also be that um, I mean the brewers have just destroyed styles. There's, you know, it's everything. There's being subdivided or these black sour saison Belgian inspired. IPAs. I, I like that though. I think the BJCP is stupid. I actually think it's it, great because it, it it's one of these things that we've done some collaborations with people, and it's well, we've wanted to use these ingredients we don't be as concerned about how it fits within this category. Whereas I think the wine drinker looks more to those styles. It's, yeah, I, I want a Chardonnay. I want a Merlot. It hasn't been, they kind of adhere more to those styles. And therefore there might be some hesitation to all of this kind of cross collaboration of, I have this little style. I know this works. And I'm not sure if we were to do a blend of something. I just, I love how the, beer industry I, I feel like craft beer at this point is just completely ignored what any style is supposed to be I mean, there's still some craft breweries that are still 
if they name it mm-hmm. this style, it's going to be that. But like most of the smaller craft breweries, they're not making anything that can fit into a style. I mean, and we love it because it makes the drinker and consumer more adventurous. Once they're not concerned about a style, they'll pick up a basil lemongrass mead and give it a shot. So it kind of makes them more open to us. So do these meads fit into the standards of mead making, or are these like the hazy lactose IPAs where they're uh, depends off who, to the right field? Depends who you ask. Um, so if you ask me, yes, this is a mead. It fits all the definitions of a mead. But if you ask some of the mead purists, our carbonated ones are not real meads because they're carbonated. They don't taste sweet, honeyed. They don't fit the kind of style guidelines for what you would expect from a honey wine. And I don't know what to say to that other than we're going off the reservation. <laughs> um, and we always want to be, I and mean, really our thing to do is to try and be, we want to be the creative leading edge. Uh, one of the things I love about doing our experimental things or whether it's collaboration or just in-house is to push it. And as long as you don't make a ton of it, we've had some complete failures and it's really funny in the tap room when I put the keg on and everyone's like, Oh my God, new project X. I got to try this mead makers here, putting it on. This is so cool. And then I try it and it's just awful. (laughs) Everyone, I'm sorry. This keg really sucks (laughs) and no one's getting this. Uh, But that's part of it is to just try and position ourselves as the creative edge. And if someone says this isn't a mead, Ironically, that's going to make another person more likely to buy it. Yeah, I, and I, I like that. It, in, you're, you're following the base process. Who cares if you're doing things to it that don't fit the traditional way of creating a mead? Well, I mean, and that's where you see, because mead is all about tradition. It is the world's oldest form of alcohol. This is predate, predating grape wine, predating beer. All that. Yeah, but so you found a better way to do it. We found a different way to do it. <laughs> Um, I mean, sweeter meads out there, and it's kind of within our industry is going to be this little bit growing faction of people like ourselves who are more on this, let's make it modern, different, kind of play to the trends that are occurring in the drinking world right now. The other people that know we need to go back to the Viking, Scandinavian, or Ethiopian heritages, do sweeter, drinking out of horns, out of, you know, the correct bottles, things like that. And, I mean, there's a place for both of them. I like the can. I do too. <laughs> I, I do too. But we, um, the the bottles are, you know, also there for it's nice to be able to hit both the beer people and the wine people. So now the sweet blossom that is more along the lines of a traditional mead, yeah. That you'd pour into a horn. Maybe yeah. I wouldn't because it's twelve percent. Okay. But I ha- <laughs> I have seen the untapped pictures of empty bottle, full pint glass. Oh, jeez. Oh. <laughs> Man, your, your Tuesday just got real. Uh, but, yeah, we can open it up. Yeah, yeah let's try, try a little that. bit. I'll but I would just little. encourage you guys, this is 12% semi-sweet. So, like, give yourself We're a little Chris. Yeah. <laughs> this is work. <laughs> well, and I was wondering, you, you described it as a fermentation, but do you age it? Do you age it at all? Or some meats aged? And when you do, or is it in casks? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, I saw pictures. Uh, there were a lot of um, oak barrels. Yep. Yeah. So the answer is all of the above. Um, we age, pretty much everything gets aged. Um, for some for a couple months. The cans tend to be a little bit less, and then the bottles for a little bit longer. We do a combination of aging. We do some in the oak casks, usually use whiskey barrels that we just keep recycling, so it's more neutral oak at this point. Mm-hmm. And that's great because it rounds it out, smooths out the flavor, hides the booze a little bit, gives you a little bit of that oak, vanilla, you know, great barrel ageness to it. But that also damps down on the floral honey flavor. So we do concurrently aging in plastic totes and that will then blend will then blend the two whereas the totes keep it bright floral but doesn't necessarily get the depth and complexity so it's still not super like other meads are much sweeter though right than this or so am this I... is this is a semi-sweet one okay right on the this is the upper end of semi-sweet right on the edge between semi-sweet mm. and sweet we wanted to have just one this is our sweetest offering um in general we like to do dry and off dry but people kept asking us hey can you make one like we want something just a little bit sweeter and we really like using the orange blossom honey because you get that citrus it's a little bit of acidity so it doesn't come across as really heavy thick cloying 
Um, and I could see this being extremely dangerous because that doesn't taste <laughs> <No>. even remotely twelve <laughs> percent alcohol. Yeah, that's um, yeah. We've seen we've seen people put these away. And this it's... tastes like you can give it to like a child. Yeah, don't. <laughs> this is very sweet. <laughs> and where do you so you your honey is all USA um, from the USA? But where do, is it USDA organic? Where do you source it? Um, so we go through a wholesaler in Pennsylvania, and they aggregate from all over, depending on the season. Mm-hmm. So it'll start earlier down south um, for the orange blossom that we're using here. That's going to pretty much always come from Florida, Georgia, or out west in California. So it really depends on the time of year. Um, organic honey is an interesting thing in that you need to have no pesticides within five miles of the hive for the last two years. Mm which is very hard to track and yeah, figure would. out. So actually you're seeing most of the organic honey is coming out of Brazil right now. And we've decided, well, we'd rather just support American stuff as opposed to using Brazilian honey. We also just like the flavor of some of these U.S. honeys we've been able to get. So you'd mentioned that um, the analogy between using different types of barley as the base and different types of honey, what, what – dictates the differences between honey so it just comes down to the flowers that the bees are going to but it's not an exact science because it's very hard to figure out did these bees go to 100 orange trees or did they go to 95 orange trees where did they go so there's kind of a gray area of what someone calls a orange blossom honey or a raspberry honey versus a wildflower and you'll see some variance from different suppliers depending on what they consider to be a specific varietal. But it's just kind of a best guess of this hive was in the middle of a blueberry patch. So bloomed. most likely. So most likely, you know, why would a bee fly past that flower to go to the tree on the edge of the woods? You know, it has another little flower for them. So now my grandfather had a farm that he mainly just grew uh, alfalfa and some fields for to feed his cattle and then corn. Mm-hmm. So what would the honey from those hives, and he had two beehives. Yep. What what would the honey from those beehives be considered? I mean, that'd probably go in mm-hmm. as alfalfa. Okay. Um, or I mean, alfalfa and clover tend to be the two main varietals you'll see a lot in the grocery stores. And then the dark one you'll see is buckwheat. But, or you could, you know, if you wasn't totally sure, you could just say it's wildflower. There's some alfalfa, some corn there, um, because you never know. They're kind of going year-round, depending on what's in bloom. But it is one of the interesting things that you see. It's a little bit counterintuitive to where some of the urban honeys will actually have um, a much more interesting and diverse flavor than some of the rural honeys, whereas so your grandfather's farm had mostly alfalfa and corn, but a hive here in Frederick would have access to all kinds of different flowers. Yeah, we actually have two hives uh, at the in the back of the building to help with it. Uh, if you may have noticed all the gardens that mm-hmm. are scattered about our property. I yeah, think so you get a little bit of all those flowers coming in there, and I'm going to need that honey on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> and in the future, are you hoping to to experiment with more unusual honeys? Like I was in Paris, and I tasted a fir tree honey, which was kind of it was like a caramel it was really interesting yes there's i mean there's a lot of that stuff that's really cool um from out west i had one a couple months ago it was a meadow foam tastes kind of like a toasted marshmallow i was like oh man i really want a toasted marshmallow mead right now um but there's we're starting to we've kind of one of those things that the first couple years we've been just trying to keep up totally overwhelmed um trying to just to figure out everything at scale that we never thought we would at this point but now we're getting more organized going back. We just got a couple hundred pounds of Baltimore City honey from an urban beekeeper they're really excited about. And just to get to be a little bit bigger, we constantly interacting with the local beekeeper associations. And a lot of times they'll say, hey, I have a couple hundred pounds of this. Would you be interested in that? Or people are starting to get in touch with us, which is really cool because uh, we do want to start doing more of that. How much honey does it take to – to make a batch at the volume that you're making your meat in? So it, it really depends um, anywhere between, you know, because uh, we get to the higher alcohol, the bottled ones, by doing more honey. So it's anywhere between, say, a pound a gallon to up to, say, two and a half pounds per gallon. And some people, you know, if you're doing a sweeter one, it'll be three, four. really depends what you're going for. 
but there's a it's kind of a wide range but it with us we're now two thousand gallon tanks so we're putting you're in, going through a lot of honey yeah <laughs> um literally a ton of times uh, do you just get like truckloads full with barrels of honey or how is it delivered um so we actually it's barrels a little teddy bear yeah, <laughs> yeah we all just sit around and squeeze them um so barrels are an option We've done some with barrels, but we've actually, our suppliers great. They can move to totes. So this is like a four foot by four foot by four foot cube <laughs> with a valve on the uh, front. You just oh. lift it up and so like we a... lift it up with a forklift and just open that valve, which is it it's terrifying. Wine. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, each one of those is 3,200 pounds about. And I mean, it, it's crazy, but it's a very, it's much easier than we started with five gallon buckets. Mm. And when you're sitting up there with the spatula, spatula, you're trying to like scoop out the last little bit because it takes so many flower visits and so many bees to make the tiniest amount of honey that we want to try and use every little bit we can. So how do you make sure you, in those big totes that you, you get it all out? Um, well, so they come with their own heater. Uh, So we'll we'll plug in our honey and that as it heats up, makes it uh, less viscous, flows a little better. And then at the end, we will just hose mouth the last little bit with hot water and flows right into the, flows right into the So they're like reusable. Yeah. We send it, we collect eight or 10 and then they send a truck down and pick up, pick them back up, take them back. Um, It's, I mean, we try and get just about all the honey out of there we can. And since you've started, has there been a fan favorite product or something that's really been popular? Uh, it depends who you ask. Um, I mean, everyone says the one I made. <laughs> um, and it really depends on the crowd. Um, also, the time of year. So basil lemongrass is pretty popular year-round. Um, in the summer, people that are in the spicy stuff love their mango calapeno. Uh, in general, the people really like the sweet blossom, a little bit sweeter, uh, not too heavy for the summer. That was recently best, best mead in uh, Maryland, according to the Winemakers Association. Hmm. So, congratulations! We're excited <laughs> excited to do something right by them. They <laughs> run us out of town for the cans. Um, it really depends on the person. I personally just like the hops. Um, so it really varies, and it's interesting to see these trends with different things that come and go. Um, where all of a sudden it'll get warm, and our elderberry is kind of like a rosé. So immediately, first weekend it gets warm, sales on that just go through the roof. And then it gets cold for a week, and everyone's ah no, you know I gotta gotta go back to my stouts, my porters. So like the elderberry one or things like, is there anything else added in, or like, or is it just because that it's honey that was from bees and an elderberry? No, we add or, so for that the, one we'll add elderberries okay. to it. But we do most of so we'll add adjuncts to it just because while that flavor is there a little bit in the honey. It's not a super pronounced flavor. So in that sweet blossom one, there was a little bit of citrus, a little bit of orange, but it wasn't knock you over orange like you're biting into an orange. So we try to, for things like elderberry or basil lemongrass, we'll add a little bit more to that. But we do want to, I mean, it is fun to start going with some of those different honeys. You say you've got fir tree. Um, so I've seen some avocado. Mm. Somebody made one with a rhubarb honey which was interesting. <laughs> I didn't really like it, but I love the creativity, and I don't even know how you get a rhubarb honey. But <laughs> the, the really creative honeys tend to come from out west. They just have access to... Because there's large fields of that one specialized mm-hmm. crop. Yeah, whether it's that or lavender, all, kind of all these different things. But the great thing that we have, particularly in Baltimore, is a lot of people that like to drink and want to try new things. That's... <laughs> <laughs> um. I, I love the videos that the Union Collective is doing whenever they announce a new person that's moving in, oh, yeah, in with great. them. And it was the um, the uh, Baltimore Whiskey, whiskey Company. Co, yeah. and, and he says, like, we promise to make all the whiskey that Baltimore can drink, and they can drink. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're really excited for everyone in that situation. Um, super jealous that it's not us. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, we already have our space, and it's awesome to see these because it was very challenging for us to find our new yeah, spot. Too bad they weren't further along when you were looking. That would have been a probably an amazing spot for you guys to be in. Yeah, but we like to think this way. Baltimore Whiskey Co. could have our spot. <laughs> um, no, they're, I mean, it's awesome they're doing because it is a challenge to – there's a lot of these small warehouses, but when you want to make that jump to this eight, ten thousand, 10000 
And then, I mean, that area is going to be such a destination with charmery. You can go rock climbing. You can get ice cream. So are you, are you close to that, too? Kind of. I mean, we're about 10, 15 minutes. So I mean, it's close. No. Yeah. I'm worried that I'm going to have to give my, all my employees cut out at noon on Friday so they can just go over there. <laughs> and play. Yeah. It's just called the Union Playground. <laughs> but it's, it's awesome to see. I mean, Union has done so much for the city, and they just keep doubling down on that and supporting the neighborhood, supporting the city. So it's really cool to see that they could find a spot kind of in the same neighborhood, stay there, and just – keep doing what they're doing now does the ruby rose have adjuncts or is that yep that has um a lot of rosebuds and it was exci- i was curious when we ordered a, a hundred pounds of dried rosebuds how big <laughs> that would be and it's a pretty large amount um so if anyone needs some rosebuds maybe you're thinking for valentine's day next year or something we've, <laughs> we've got a you few. can cover them um and then we zested uh, a lot of grapefruits so if you're wondering why there were a bunch of grapefruit crush specials um, at various <laughs> bars around Baltimore in the late spring, that was because of us. <laughs> so anyone who enjoyed those, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> now, your uh, new location, is uh, is it a large expansion too, or was it just moving into a better location? Um, both. So we went from 1,500 square feet to about – 8,000. Oh, wow. So very substantial. Substantial. We made a a big jump, kind of timed it right with going into signing distribution. We've been self-distributing for a couple years, and just my hatchback was about to die. (laughs) Uh, My father was getting tired of us borrowing his pickup. So timed it with that, also getting a canning line, um, kind of making some big jumps in production. We're going to go into Northern Virginia next week. We're really excited about. And it's this tricky thing of when you want to grow – you also want to, we wanted to invest in the space, make some improvements. So we want a long lease and we're looking at, well, gosh, here we are at year three. We're already getting pretty big. We're already really growing. Where could we be in year eight, nine, 10? Because you're looking at signing these 10 year leases and all of a sudden the, the economic reality um, of stuff gets real. Mm. Um, and it's, I mean, it's crazy to me that we're in a 8,000 square foot warehouse at <laughs> year three. And we're already renting space uh, around the corner for canned storage and bottles and just kind of the empty dry goods. But it's just, I mean, it's the way it's going. Union can talk about this. Uh, you've seen the expansion that Oliver's did recently. There's, I mean, it's it's just going nuts right now. How is your tap room going to be a substantial part of that, or is that mostly production taking up that mostly space? production? Um, tap room is going to be probably about 800 square feet or so. So we also are putting in a little bit of a green space outside. So what we want to do is have that. Also, we're going to get a beer and wine license just to, not that we want to have a ton of different stuff, but we're already kind of a little bit of a different thing with mead. And I want to showcase kind of some of the differences you can do with ciders as well. We've got some really cool stuff like Distillery Lanes doing some great dry ciders or Orchid Cellars doing some very spicy much longer age, several-year-old meads. So I want to be able to have just a little bit extra of that and also just serve one beer because we recognize there are times when, hey, you want a beer, yeah. um, ourselves included. So we kind of also really want to just expand Mrs. Taproom experience, whereas we were kind of just a garage down in the middle of nowhere on the south side. Really expands experience, make it more also about honeys. So we'll have a honey tasting as part of the tours, uh, try this honey, and then, hey, this is a mead made with that honey. Because a lot of people just think honey is honey, but it can be totally different. I <laughs> always thought it was just yeah. the same. <laughs> well, you have to come by sometime. And do you have your own bees on the property? So we go back and forth on this a lot. And we're open to this because we also kicked around the idea of just making the bar clear plexiglass and having bees inside the bar oh my gosh <laughs> but then we're like would anyone actually drink anything or would they just sit run also have a in case of emergency break and a, yeah. a ton of epi pens <laughs> yeah we laugh about that but that is unfortunately the hesitation of we want to be open and welcoming for everyone so we also don't want people who may be allergic or a lot of people scared get to, yeah, scared to come because people get stung by a wasp or a hornet or something and think, oh, a bee stung me. Well, that, yeah, it's a more aggressive um, species here, but we don't want people to feel 
uncomfortable or not welcome, nervous about coming. So we'll see. I think we're going to open, and then we may just kind of off in one corner, kind of far away, have one hive that just goes through to the outside, have one side be plexiglass. So we can say at the end of the tour, hey, if anyone wants to see a beehive, come with me over here. Otherwise, thank you so much. Head back to the taproom. Mm. Yeah, like at my grandfather's, the, the hives were right near where a lot of like family activity took place. I don't think anyone was ever stung by those bees. Mm-hmm. Like it was always wasps or. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things when you think about it, you're really no good to the bees. You're not a yeah. flower. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're generally just yeah. going to annoy them. There's nothing good there. Um, so it just kind of tends to be people don't really know kind of the lack of education, but yeah, we so also, you just add yet another thing you need to educate people yeah. on. <laughs> um, so it's, we're kind of just trying to ease into it. Um, I would like to, I think what we might try to do kind of sooner might be to have a beekeeper day where it's just bring your supers, bring your, um, honey high or like kind of the flats with honey in them and we'll process them, spend a day hanging out with other beekeepers and then we'll make a mead with all this honey, kind of try to keep integrating into the beekeeper societies. And then once we get a better feel for our tap room, see how it is, maybe do we put one hive over here? Because also, if people are going to be outside, you know, will the BBs there? We don't really know. The other thing that I also really don't know is how many people are going to want to come to a mead tap room in Baltimore City. <laughs> um, I mean, we've been great. We've gotten a yeah. tremendous amount of support. Um, way more people came down to our old spot. But is it going to be we're going to have 40 people through on a Saturday, or are we going to have 300? And what does that look like? first things like that and then to not overwhelm my staff with staff with yeah you also need to make sure that nobody gets drunk and you know kicks stump, the, yeah, kicks the beehive. <laughs> <laughs> but does james still have his own apiary like, yep. did, okay. we still we both still do um over on the eastern shore mm. so we've got uh there's about 15 18 hives now get um, you using the fancy words apiary <laughs> yeah, um and our original plan was we'd have a bunch of beehives mm-hmm. and then we realized that very quickly, we're either going to be beekeepers or, <laughs> or mead makers. So it's now just I mean, one of the most fun parts that I love going out there and just listening to the bees, um, the buzz, seeing all they're doing. Because um, it's really cool just to watch them all flying around and everything. But it's one of those, it's a hard, I mean, there's so many. I think last year in Maryland, close to 60% of the hives died. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So it's a really hard time to be a bee and a beekeeper. Um and then it's just terrible emotional experience when you open up the hive and there's this dead pile of like 10,000 bees. Oh. And you're like, ah. Oh. So we're like, well, we could just make mead instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are there things, is there anything, when a hive dies, is there anything that can be done to help prevent that? Or is it because of the environment and what they're encountering when they're out Sometimes that causes a hive to die? There's so many different reasons for a hive to die. And that's part of the challenge is figuring out which one is it. Was it that we had a really weird winter where it got really warm, things started to bloom, and then it got really cold for a little bit? Or is it they've been tracing stuff back, they've been pushing some bills through about um, certain pesticides called neonicotinoids that tend to affect hives? Or is it that it's really bad mites or pests? So beekeepers can definitely diagnose it um, and also kind of see certain things coming. But then there is just a certain invariability that you can't control you can't control if the mosquito truck from the town comes down and just sprays everywhere. everywhere. Um, And it's this balance, particularly as you see things of, you have, okay, you have Zika coming in, and beekeepers might not want you to spray for Zika, but... People don't want to get Zika. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, you know, that hasn't been as big of a concern around here, but there's just so many... It's tough to figure out this is the one main... Like, if we address this one issue, bees will be okay. It's a much broader, just kind of almost holistic planet ecosystem thing of there's a lot of issues. Also, as the economy just gets more global, you have pests coming in they're not ready for. When something comes from Australia or China on some ships and all of a sudden there's no defense against it here and they're everywhere. Yeah, and I'd assume that colony collapse would be a big concern for yep. the, exactly. <laughs> the but it's still, industry. There's still, yeah, that's a concern. Um but they've still been they spending a lot of effort towards that. Um, and they're still just, you know, well, we think it's these neonicotinoids, but also these other factors contribute. And, I mean, that's taken them a while to figure out. So 
they're working on it though. Um, a lot of really good things there. State un- ag universities are getting involved. And you see a lot of, I mean, for the pollinator side, there's a lot of big food industries that want that. They want to have the almonds, the strawberries. Mm. How do you become a beekeeper? Uh, it's really easy. I mean, you can, there's, so because beekeeping is generally a pretty lonely profession, you have a lot of beekeepers that uh, know a lot and desperately want to hang out with people. And <laughs> so just ask a beekeeper how to be one and they'll yes. share how. Yes. Um, and then it's basically just, you know, or a little kit. Bees actually get shipped through the mail. Oh, that's I cool. Didn't. I didn't know um, that. Yeah. But you want to be careful about that because they, the postal workers do not like that. <laughs> they usually leave them down at the end of the loading dock and come in and you're like, yeah, your package is over there. <laughs> get it now. Um, but it's the, uh, particularly around here in Maryland, the local beekeeping associations, whether it's Montgomery County or central Maryland beekeepers, uh, somewhere on the Eastern shore as well are very supportive, very open because same thing we're talking about with ages of industries. Um, it tends to be a little kind of older graying industry, whereas, you know, the brewers a little bit younger and beekeepers are recognizing how do we get, you know, kind of the next generation involved? What do we do? And also, how do we just pass this knowledge along? Because it can be really frustrating of everything looks great with your beehive. Things are awesome. You do everything that everyone says to do. And then put them down for the winter, come back in the spring, and they're dead. Or they're gone. It's like, oh, what did I do wrong? And they, you know, they didn't leave a note to say. You know, <laughs> we weren't happy about this. Yeah, if you're reading this, you already know. <laughs> <laughs> right, do you have any more questions? I don't. I think I'm good. I want to thank you so much for coming out and expanding my horizons to mead. <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed them. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I mean, we love, you know, everything that you and other podcasts and just everyone are doing to support the kind of Maryland alcoholic beverage scene. And uh, let everyone know one last time, wh- how uh, should they find you? Um, we're on all the social medias at, at Charm City Mead. We have a mead finder on our website if you're curious. We're now about 400 places, and yeah, really just you know Google us, kind of all the normal ways that you want to find out. We're all over that. It all leads back to me. We're still a budget tiny operation. <laughs> um, so yeah, but if you're ever curious about anything, let us know. There's no question that's too silly, too basic, too dumb. Um, there's none of that. We're all about just interacting with people and you know love the support we've gotten from everyone. And when do you say again the new tap room will be ready? We're hoping for mid to late August. If you, but we're going to be announcing that everywhere. Okay. So if you look for us on our Facebook uh, website or Instagram, it's going to be all over. Great. Well, once again, thank you for coming in. All right. Thank you. Cheers. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.